0: Well, hello and um, welcome to this blog. Um, In this one, I thought, this is the first of the series and I thought I'd just chat about something that's certainly close to my heart and that's partly because I love travel. I have done for a very long time. I used to travel, um, uh, I grew up in the UK so I used to um, travel to Europe when I could and then I gradually went further afield and I've now been to, um, uh, well, North America, Asia, India, Africa, I've lived in Australia and one of the things about that for me is that you get a glimpse of a different way of life quite often and sometimes it's substantially different to your regular day-to-day. And that is one of one aspect of travel that I love with photography and uh, I've been interested and passionate about photography really since I was uh, a boy, since I can remember really. And um, it's kind of led me to explore one particular way of traveling and that has its roots in doing wildlife photography, which is something that I absolutely love. And there's a whole sort of bunch of stuff around that really, because I like to try and shoot the kind of images of animals that you wouldn't normally see. Um, It's not always easy because quite often shooting wildlife, you don't have many options. You can't move around too much. You're often in a vehicle of some sort. I mean, I've shot a lot of humpback whale photographs in uh, Australia, both uh, west and east coast, so obviously I'm in a boat, and the thing about whales is you don't know where they are, they just kind of pop up, um, and also I've been to Africa a few times, I've been to um, India a couple of times, and when I've been looking at wildlife, I've been in a four-wheel drive. Now they're very open usually, I mean they vary, some are really open, others uh, you do have Solid um, metal and glass around you that you obviously you're shooting through the windows. You've got the windows open, but even then you're quite often limited because often you have to stay on uh, tracks. If you're in a reserve, you may have other vehicles around too, which can limit you. If you're part of a group, uh, other people are likely to be in the vehicle too, so that can also limit your shooting options. So. Um, All of these things have an impact and have a bearing on the kind of results you can get and how you feel about the trip afterwards. Do you walk away from it feeling that was a great trip, a great investment of time and money? Or do you feel a bit frustrated that you've not really come away with the kind of photographs you were hoping to get? So that really really brings me on to the subject of this uh, little talk here, which is volunteering. Now, it's something I first volunteered back in the early 90s. And in fact, that was a brilliant experience. I volunteered with a company called Earthwatch and I was helping a couple of humpback whale researchers, Kurt and Mitch and um, Jenna. And since that time, they, they have made a, a huge contribution to our understanding of not only humpback whales and um, how they live, uh, particularly in the Western Australian sort of area, Um, At the time, they didn't know, nobody knew where the carving grounds were for humpback whales in uh, Western Australia, and Kurt and Mitch basically found them, though not while I was with them. We were a bit too far south. But the thing about that was that I learned a huge amount about humpback whales, and I, I think I caught a bit of the passion that both Kurt and Mitch have for the animals they work with. And this is something that I found subsequently when I volunteered with other projects, the people involved are always really excited, not only about what they're doing and the animals, but they're excited to share what they know with the people who take time and money to go and um, volunteer with them and help them in their work. So there's a a couple of things about that. One is there's just that opportunity to learn in a lot more detail uh, than you perhaps would otherwise. And also it's often hands-on learning because you're maybe talking about something before you go out, and then you're observing a behavior. We were, with the humpback whales, we were um, making, whenever we had a contact with a whale, we'd jot down the time, obviously we knew the date, we'd have that in a little logbook we carried, we'd have the, the time, the date, we'd have a position, we had a very early GPS, and uh, we'd jot down our position, and then we'd be making notes about the kind of behaviors we were seeing, the duration of the contact with the whale, all this kind of thing and all of and um kurt in fact was taking photographs and he was taking id photographs so he would try and get either side of the dorsal fin uh, which is the small fin about two-thirds along the length of uh, humpback's body and they vary quite a lot in their shape so he was trying to get um, the shots of either side of the dorsal and then the underside of the fluke which is the tail of the uh, the whale so when it does a kind of deeper dive it will lift its fluke up right out of the water often and it's a bit like you duck diving Uh, when you're swimming you'll tend to lift your legs up high to get your face down deep and whales essentially do the same thing with with their tails so that was the other shot that Kurt was getting and combining those three pictures together and our observations that would all be put into a worldwide database and it allowed scientists to begin to track where in different individuals are going because um, people were matching up observations and uh, trying to work out the actual routes individuals took. You can imagine uh, these days, it's an awful lot easier with digital photography and computing's moved on quite a bit, but back then it would have been quite an arduous um, sort of undertaking. But that built up a picture of different, it, it it meant we understood there were different populations of humpbacks, discrete populations, some intermixing, but not often much. And, the same whales would undertake the same journeys every year. So the the humpback whales have a massive, uh, I think the biggest migration of any uh, current living animal um, from certainly the Australian ones, they'll come from Antarctica where they are in the Southern summer. And then they'll head up, um, up to the Kimberley area in the West and then up into uh, Queensland on the East. And that's where the carving grounds are. And that's where they mate as well. So, The reason they do that, or at least one of the reasons, is that uh, calves when they're born have very little blubber. Uh, So they're uh, very vulnerable to the the temperature of the water. And obviously being born in warmer water gives them a chance to bulk up a little bit by feeding from their mothers on the journey back down south and then arrive back in the um, Antarctic feeding grounds uh, in time for summer. So that's one aspect of it. And, And then looking at land animals, I've, I've done different trips. Some of them have been kind of the holiday safari trips. Others, I did a privately organized trip in India to, to photograph tigers. And the thing that seems to be common in all of those is that you're in a national park and there are lots of different companies vying for attention and vying for customers. And then, of course, everybody's going into the same places. Now, the thing with predators particularly you don't necessarily see them all the time. You've got to go find them. And certainly that's true with tigers. And I know of people who've gone to India and spent a few days at a tiger reserve or going to different tiger reserves and not seen a single tiger. Whereas, um, I think I made about four. I think it was 14 trips that we made into the um, park at Karna, where I was. And we saw tigers for just over half of those. So we had our fair share of duds in terms of, trips where we didn't see anything. But the point about it is when you do find an animal, often everybody else hurls over to the same spot. And before you know it, you're one of maybe four, five, six, or maybe even more vehicles around one animal. Now, either they'll walk away and go into the undergrowth so you can't see them anymore, or they'll kind of sit there and then you get drives. And I've certainly seen this, um, perhaps more so in uh, Africa. Um, they'll drive in close to the animal to try and provoke some sort of a response or to make sure that their clients get the best view, and it's just a circus, and um, it's something I disagree with, it's something I really don't want to be a part of. So volunteering on the other hand, quite often you're in a private game reserve, or in the case of when I was um, volunteering with EHRA in Namibia, which is Elephant Human Relations Aid, and they basically help the local population integrate and live with the elephants. That's one aspect of what they do, and some of that's education. Uh, Others is building infrastructure, protection, and that's part of what I was involved with. And they also track the animals. So we were tracking the elephants for several days and we camped overnight and then we would carry on. So the thing is, whether you're in a private game reserve, which tend to be a bit more exclusive, so there are fewer vehicles around and you may not even see any at all, or if you're out in the bush and because you're doing extended tracking, you're less likely to come across other people. In both of those situations, when you do come across an animal, often you're the only people there. And the opportunity to get really good photographs is far, far better than certainly I've experienced when I've been on the more sort of safari holiday thing. So that that's another aspect of volunteering for me. And I think the final thing, so that's education, there's just access to the animals. And the final thing for me is about contri- contributing, it's giving back. Now, in the case of the whale research, I was helping in a small way with the work that Kurt and Mitch were doing with um, EHRA in Namibia Um again, just contributing financially, contributing time. And we we, we actually finished off building this um, stone wall that was around the water tower. So it was we would just go and get these big rocks. And we actually built, it was a, a, um, two rings of, of wall with a, a very narrow gap between them. So a person could squeeze through, but there was no way an elephant could get inside and no way an elephant could climb over that. Why it was why it was two metres high and it was a double ring of um uh, stone because it was then that solid that an elephant couldn't push it couldn't push it down so we were contributing to the local communities in that way when i um, i also uh volunteered for a project called the Nakavango conservation program in um, zimbabwe and that was just brilliant i learned so much i was there for four weeks i was fortunate to be able to spend four weeks there and that was just one of the best trips i've ever made in my life and what we would do on a Wednesday morning, we would go over to the local school, and um, we might do a bit of gardening. There was a kind of vegetable patch there um, that the local people actually use for food. So we would look after it. I say we. I actually spent most of my time in the playing field digging up big rocks because I'm just not very good at gardening. But and the, the point about digging the rocks up, it meant the kids could play on the playing field without tripping over, you know, these big rocks that were poking through the surface. So. Just doing a little bit in a very small way to help local people. We'd sometimes chip in and buy a crate of oranges for the kids when we uh, went along there. And um, then the kids loved playing with us and loved seeing us coming. And um, also had that experience in... Um, sorry about that. That was my phone. <laughs> Which I must remember to turn off. We um, also had that experience in South Africa at a, 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 a the Kwantu Game Reserve where they also have volunteering projects and again it's a similar thing private reserve and um, again they, they, there's aspects of that one which i will to talk about in this uh, particular podcast but um, i'll save it for another one but they did some very interesting stuff there so again massive amount to learn it's a great way of interacting with animals and one thing i did get from particularly the ehra experience in namibia and also with the Nakavango project in Zimbabwe, is that things popped up that which completely changed my way of thinking. I'm not going to talk about Nakavango right now. I'd prefer to do that as a separate podcast, because what they're talking about takes a little bit of time. And I don't want to be talking for too long. Um, we'll keep it down to about 15 minutes, because I'm sure you don't want to listen to this for too long. But I hope you're finding it interesting. But when I was in Namibia, there were stories, We, we you know, we learned that there had been people killed. And we we knew that happened, and and I certainly knew that happened before I went. But it was um, you know another thing to kind of be there. And while we were building this um, wall around the water tower, we were actually camped out in a really big tent. We just set it up very close to where we were working, which, which was unusual because quite often people have to trek a little way. But uh, from a either a base camp or a home base camp to where they're working. That might be an hour each way every day, but we didn't do that. We were actually fortunate. We were able to camp right next to where we were working. And so a local family came by one evening. We'd stop for the day, because um, I mean, it gets very hot during the day anyway. So we tended to try and be ready to start working around, I think it was 7.30, and then we'd work until midday, but then we couldn't do anything for about three hours because it was just too hot and too humid, and we'd just um, be sweating. Sorry, that's the phone again. Um, so we would then work again in the evening and, or in the afternoon rather and then we'd get a few hours done and then as the you it know, got close to the sun beginning to go down we would then stop for the day and um, one day we were getting food ready and this family came along and they were walking from the local village up to um, they were going to walk up to the top of a small hill that overlooked where we were working and we, we got talking to them which was lovely anyway and they were telling us about um, a friend of theirs who'd been killed by an elephant. And this had happened a little, um, a few, I think it was a few months, few we, uh, a few months earlier. And what had happened, it was a couple of guys, they'd been out drinking. They were just walking back home. As You, know, you can imagine this situation pretty much anywhere. And it's dark. They're in the bush. And they didn't realize there was um, a bull elephant there. And elephants have quite bad eyesight. They really can't see things very well until you get quite close to them. So that naturally makes them a bit, can make them a bit jumpy. And if you startle them, particularly a large bull, you know, the chances are it's going to do some damage. And unfortunately that was what happened on that particular occasion. And uh, one of the guys was killed. And just talking to these guys, what we began to under, what I began to understand was they regarded the elephants almost as the sort of the boogeyman. It was, there's almost a sort of supernatural aspect to them. And, There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the people who live in that area now aren't the people who used to live there because there was war in that area a few decades ago now, the late 20th century. And the local people who were there kind of moved out, those that were were left. And also the elephants moved away with all of that going on. They went further north, they went up to Angola. And um, then when everything calmed down again and, and, you know, peace came back, new people moved into the area, but... There were no elephants there, and they'd never lived with elephants. But a few years later, and the um, EHRA um, website, so if you go to ehranamibia.org, their website tells the story of um, how the elephants returned. And, of course, at that stage, those people had never lived with the elephants, and the elephants just went and did their thing, which unfortunately can be a bit destructive, which is hence why we were building a a wall around the water tower. And the local people were very frightened of them and they were destroying uh, their crops, they were destroying infrastructure, and all of this led to conflict. So this is why EHRA got going. And I mentioned earlier the work they do includes um, education of local people about elephants. But the local people have had this supernatural fear of them. I think they still have it to some extent. So it's partly because they're not used to living with them but also because they don't know where the elephants are whereas we actually did know where they were when we were camping because local people thought we were nuts camping where we were because they knew the elephants went through there but we knew from our guides that the elephants were actually some miles away. They were in a different area altogether. So we knew we were safe but the local people don't have that day-to-day knowledge of where the elephants are. So the elephants can kind of appear out of nowhere almost and because they are dangerous because if you do startle them People do get killed. There's this fear about them, and I just really hadn't even thought about that. That was a completely new uh, point of view for me, and uh, that was one of the big takeaways I had from doing that trip. And the good news is that um, these days we were talking to uh, Rachel, who's the MD of um, EHRa. She came along. uh, We were just kind of the last trip before Christmas in 2019, so she came over. But was She'd been talking about um, what was going on locally and she said the local people are now referring to the elephants as their elephants. So that's really lovely that the project has been able to have that level of impact where people have gone from being really frightened of the local elephants through to now owning them. And um, obviously the whole work is ongoing and it relies very much on money from um this sort of tourism if you like the, the sort of volunteer tourism but when you do these kind of projects it really does go to support a worthy cause and um, there are only two populations of um desert african elephants which are um they're not quite a separate subspecies although they do have some minor differences to regular elephants that you're going to come across but there's only two um populations remaining now one in namibia and one in mali and that's it So it's really nice to be able to at least experience them up close um, and do something which at least helps the local area and contributes towards the local area and the local people. So I'm going to stop talking now. Um, I hope you found that interesting. If you are interested in what I do, um, so I really have two aspects to what I do. One is Graham Elliott Photography, and that is... um, photographic prints of animals on a fine art paper, and so they are properly processed, you know, is uh, quality stuff I had to uh, hasten to add. And um, what I do with that, so I talk about 10% of the proceeds go to uh, a couple of projects. In fact, if you do have a look at my catalogue, you'll see that I talk about the projects. One of them is EHRA. The other one is a project in Australia called Half Cut, which is um, a brilliant project. And I'll talk about that in a separate podcast, I think, because it really deserves its its own time. But it's a, a really brilliant idea, brilliant, brilliantly executed. And um, I've been able to do a little bit of photography with those guys, very fortunate to make contact with them. And um, so I also support them. So when I say I'm contributing 10% of my proceeds, what I mean by that is um, I try and 10 or a minimum of 10%. What I aim for is 10% of what you've paid for the prints that I sell. Um, And if I can, I'll actually add a bit more than that. So um, it's something I'm passionate about. And I want to use my work to do something good. So that's the um, Graham Elliott photography part of what I do. And there is also um, the Creative Photography Academy. So I also do online training, I've got an online membership program. And that's really there designed to help people who are either using a smartphone or the DSLR or mirrorless camera. And it doesn't really matter what level of experience you've got. You might be a novice or you might have been photographing for years. But I find that, um, I know I've done formal training. I also use YouTube from time to time to find stuff out. But I do believe that by doing a formal training course, you kind of cover everything. And that's the approach I've taken with my courses. So they're not overly techy. I think you do need to know certain things to get the best from a camera. But I only focus on what I feel you need to know. I'm not, it, It's not an in-depth technical thing about how a camera works or anything like that at all. So if um, you want to know more about any of that stuff, I suggest you have a look at the Creative Photography Academy website. So it's www.creativephotographyacademy.com. Excuse me, that's the website address. If you're interested in the fine art, I'm kind of in the... I actually have a French... Language landing page at the moment, just because I'm running well, at least as I record this. So, if you jump on to www.ge.photography, that will actually take you to a, a catalogue page where you can get the um, catalogue, it's but it's French version. So, um, if you're not listening to this in French, you don't know, want the French one um, I'm, because I'm sort of reorganizing myself. If you go to the Creative Photography Academy um, website and just look at the membership page, If you scroll right down to the bottom of the membership page, you'll see um, a short panel about the Inspiration magazine, which is a magazine that I put out every month on the second Tuesday of the month. And uh, on that sort of page for the membership program, there is a button there. If you click on that, it will just take you to the current issue of the Inspiration magazine. So you don't need to give me an email address or anything like that. It's just a straight download to the, um, the magazine. And if you have a look at that, that then has links to... Pretty much everything i do and towards the back of the magazine you'll find um stuff about the fine art prints so um i'm sorry that's a bit of a roundabout way of doing things but uh, that's just how it worked out so i'm going to stop now it's been um uh, d- over 20 minutes so uh, it was a bit longer than i planned to talk about but i hope you found that interesting and um i will be putting up other podcasts and um you know obviously would love to have you uh, join me so thanks again for listening and um Whatever you're doing, I hope you have a great day. Bye for now. Just before I go, I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the, um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month. You'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is information available through my website and um, also on the uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now. Thank you.